You ain't cause you not. This is why, this is why, this is where I'm hot. I'm hot cause I'm wearing footy pajamas. This is why, this is why, this is why I'm hot. Welcome to episode 113 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. Grr, reporting for duty. <laughs> I feel like that would have made more sense if they could see what you look like. Right no, now. they can't see. Um, uh, I am Kayla Moria. I am currently wearing my Gur onesie, and that is a very specific intro for people who are fans of Invader Zim. I was going to ask, what is that from? You never got into Invader Zim? No. What about Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, like, no. graphic novel? Okay. Jan Vasquez made these things specifically, and there was, uh, and, and Invader Zim was a personal favorite of mine, and I am wearing a onesie pajama that is grr. So, you know. And that- I'm going to take a picture of it right now. Doody, doody, doody. Doody, doody, doody. <laughs> I'm not good at my girl impressions, but I love this onesie that I got at Hot Topic. Of course you got it at Hot Topic. <sighs> Kayla. Oh, we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, Kayla. we are. <laughs> <laughs> I got very distracted. Uh, Kayla, how are you? I am great. Yeah. We had a super fun time on Saturday. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. The Aqua Affair. Yeah. I had a couple of people look at my outfit and say, now she understood the assignment. And I was like, (gasps) it's like the highest compliment you could give someone who goes on TikTok. So I started my Saturday um, at the Homegrown Mixer, Mm -hmm. which is a first year ever thing that we've done where the Homegrown Committee and uh, uh, fucking... There's the steering committee and the board. The board, yes. Yeah. So a bunch of us showed up and like we're there to answer questions for people about like how can they volunteer? Mm-hmm. Um, how does their business get involved? Yeah. As an artist, like how can I apply? Like these types of things. It was the first time that any, it was very, we were trying to be very transparent about stuff. That is good. And then I left that immediately and went to the Aqua Fair to meet you and Libby where you picked up my Shawnee. Uh-huh. And that was super fun. I love to see all the fishies. And we acquired a Dana along the way. We acquired a Dana along the way. That was great. And uh, we looked badass. If you have not seen our social media post, you should go look at it because we look chef's kiss mint. Nice. And then afterwards, we all went to watch uh, Ides of March at Pizza Luce. Yes, that was Dana's first time at the aquarium as well as at any show at Luce. And it was so cool. There was a band that covered... The Black Keys, and yes. they were, oh my God, they were so talented. Phenomenal. Oh, it was it was mint. It was so yeah. good. And then there was a band that covered The Cure, and then our very favorite, Adam Herman, ended the night. What did he cover? It was just Adam Herman. Oh, he just did it. I mean, he might have covered stuff, and then maybe it's just stuff I didn't recognize, but I'm just happy to see Adam Herman play anytime. I think we left shortly before Adam started. 
It was really late, y'all. It I, was late. I, I think I got Adam home. started at midnight. Yeah, I think we got home at like one, which is uh, really late for me. <laughs> My voice is still kind of a little crackly after uh, after all the yelling at Luce, but not too bad. It was much worse yesterday. So this is going to be a really fun next couple of episodes. Yeah. Um, we are recording this one for this week. Uh-huh. And then later on this week, we are recording the next few episodes. We're going to have a special guest star, which will be announced next week. Yeah. And then the week after that, we've got another one. But we're recording them all this, this week, week because I have to go uh, to Vegas for a work thing. And then I get to go see Gina Gleason get married because we love Gina Gleason. That is so exciting. And you get to go someplace warm. Yeah, I get to go to Vegas and then Austin. Oh. But uh, Brittany is being amazing and supportive and great and letting us record three episodes in one week so that I can go do this. You know how good I am with uh, doing my research early. So <laughs> I clearly have only done today's. Oh, she's got this. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I mean, I always get it done. It's fine. I thrive under pressure. But you have a story for me. I do. It's one that's been in my list for a while. Nice. So this week I'm hanging out in the Midwest. Nice. With awesome. a discussion from Gary, Indiana. I was waiting for the song. So that's what I was like, as a quick sidebar, apparently Gary, Indiana is a bit rough as far as uh, city beauty goes. Okay. Um. I was always like, that's got to be a magical place because there's that song from the Music Man and it's all like, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, uh, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the words because I'm not a huge Music Man fan. Me neither. But the song is upbeat and you assume it's about a nice town. Yeah. But apparently the city of Gary was once a prosperous steel town. Uh, overseas competition and restructuring of the industry led to population loss of 55% since its peak in the 1960s. Yeesh. Much of the city lies abandoned, and it's estimated that a third of all properties in the city are unoccupied. Oh, my God. And that was from a source that was from 2019. So pretty recent. Dude, a third of the properties are unoccupied. unoccupied. Yep. Okay. It ranks second only to Detroit in percentage of population lost in the Rust Belt since the turn of the century. Okay. Another huge factor is racial discrimination and disparity. I mean, isn't it always? Yes. Uh, if you take into account Gary's economic decline, you cannot separate the town's history from its really terrible racial segregation. Okay. Uh, in the beginning, many newcomers to the town were white European immigrants. Many African-American immigrants also migrated from the deep south to escape Jim Crow laws. Yeah. Um, and though, like, honestly, they escaped the laws, but things really weren't better for them and Gary. It was no, terrible. because people are terrible. Uh, black workers were often marginalized and isolated due to discrimination. By World War II, quote, Gary had become a fully segregated city with staunch racist elements, unquote. Even amongst immigrant populations. Ugh. So today, about 81% of Gary's population is black. And unlike their white neighbors, the town's black workers faced uphill battles trying to build a better life during Gary's decline. Yeah. So there's a quote from uh, a Guardian, a 2017 Guardian article. And Walter Bell told them that when the jobs left, the whites could move, and they did, but we blacks did not have a choice. 
They wouldn't let us into their new neighborhoods with the good jobs, or if they let us, we couldn't afford it. Right. And yet they have all these houses that are sitting empty. Then to make it worse, when we looked into the nice houses they left behind, we couldn't buy them because the banks wouldn't lend us money. That is such bullshit. Do you want it to sit empty or do you want people to live in them and give you money? Housing crisis. Right there. Oh, it's so infuriating. So yeah, tons of building have been left to deteriorate and the history, like combined with the history filled with racism, the population suffers because the city fell apart. Right. And the people that were left behind do not have the capability to work it up because the banks won't let them. Right. Oh my God. A couple of my sources had comments where people said it's on the upswing, but I'm just going off of what a lot of articles have said, which is Mm -hmm. even if it's on the upswing, it's still a a tough battle. Yeah, it's still not going well. So that kind of sets the scene for the type of city that this is located in. Uh Uh, Disclaimer, this story has to do with exorcism. Oh, okay. If you're not comfortable with the subject, check out the episode description. I will note in the description when my story ends mm. and Brittany's begins so you can still check out Brittany's story. Is this for your mom? Yes, but also <laughs> other people who may not be comfortable, but mostly my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I know my audience. Mostly I just included all of that because it does set the tone because the house I'm going to talk about revolves around a black family who could not leave because of financial situations. That is one of those things where every paranormal podcast that covers haunted houses specifically where people are actually actively living there, everyone's like, why wouldn't you move? But it's like, I have spent most of my life not being in a position to be able to move no matter how scary it is. Yeah, exactly. So an article in the Indianapolis Star by Marissa Kwiatkowski and a Skeptical Inquirer article by Joel Nickel were my main sources for this week. Okay. Our story takes place in a small rental cottage with an enclosed porch at 3860 Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. It's a fairly quiet street lined with similar small one-story homes. Latoya Ammons, who is the main subject of our story and swears by her story, Mm -hmm. has been unusually open considering how most people act when dealing with possessions. Okay. While she spoke to the Indianapolis Star on the condition of her children, she said that she would not name and will not allow her children to be interviewed regarding this. So all of this interview comes from uh, LaToya, the police surrounding it, and her her mother. Okay. So she specifically, like, signed releases and everything but said, you will not talk to my children. Good. Good mom. Yep. Protecting your children. And I'm not going to name my children because this is not on them, which I wish more parents would do in a lot of these situations, honestly. Ah, yeah. Otherwise, they always get branded the child connected to that exorcism. Exactly. And the reason that this is quick to point out is because a lot of people want to push off these stories as attention-grabbing, but these releases she signed let the Indianapolis Star give a lot of medical, psychological, and official records that are not open to the public, so they they weren't just going to be out there until she said them. Right. And they're not always flattering. And, you know... So if you're tempted... Yeah. If you're tempted to think, like, oh, this is attention-grabby, she didn't have to do this. Right. So, in November of 2011, LaToya Ammons and her family moved into this house. And their problems started with flies. Uh, Ugh. 
Now, most of us have dealt with these flies before. The big, black, ugly, chonky, like, really slow-moving, gross ones that yet, swarm older houses in the summer. Yeah, and want to always run into your face, or is that just a mean problem? Your face, or, like, fall, like fly under your plate when you're just trying to eat dinner, those kinds like, of things. Oh, my God, go away. Leave me alone. Like, shoot fly. Don't bother me. I don't know what causes them, but I hate them, but... As a Minnesotan, and Indiana is south of us, but they still get cold. Mm-hmm. They're not a problem in winter. They, no. they, we just don't see them until springtime comes around. Yeah. Well, this is what made it weird. These big black flies suddenly swarmed that screened-in porch in December, despite the winter chill. That is, I could see like maybe one or two, but swarmed implies many more. At the time, Ammon's mother, Rosa Campbell, said, this is not normal. We killed them and killed them and killed them, but they kept coming back. Oh, my God. Ugh. This was soon followed by other strange happenings as well. Some nights after midnight, Campbell and Ammons both said they would occasionally hear the steady clump of footsteps climbing the basement stairs and the creak of the door opening between the basement and the kitchen. But then when they would go to investigate, no one was there. No, I have a question. I'm not sure if you know the answer. Are they renting this house or do they own it? Renting. Okay. Campbell said she awoke one night and saw a shadowy figure of a man pacing her living room. She leapt out of bed to investigate and found large, wet boot prints, but nobody there. Okay. On March 10th of 2012, it got worse. It was about 2 a.m. and the family was still up with a group of friends because they had just mourned the death of a loved one. Mm Mm-hmm. Latoya Ammons startled everybody by screaming, Mama, Mama, calling for Campbell. Yeah. Campbell came running to the room where her then 12-year-old granddaughter, Ammons' 12-year-old daughter, and a friend were staying, and she saw the 12-year-old was levitating above the bed unconscious. So their their friend came over and then began like levitating the, while sleeping, no, and the then 12, the daughter... No, oh. the 12-year-old daughter... Uh-huh. Um, had been in the room with her friend who came over because they were having this, like, this morning Gathering, thing. yeah. Yep. And so her 12-year-old friend was with her in the room. Ammons went to check, and Ammons' daughter was the one levitating with her friend was in the room. Yelling mama. Mama? No. <laughs> so the the unconscious girl was yelling mama. No. Okay. Latoya Ammons startled everybody by screaming mama, mama, because she went into the room to check on... Her daughter and her friend. So she was and the calling daughter to the was grandmother. Like, exactly. Okay. Yep. Mm. You know, you probably said that correctly the first time. And I just... <laughs> okay. According to their account of events, Ammons and several other friends surrounded the girl and started praying. Eventually, Campbell said her granddaughter descended onto the bed and the girl awoke with no memory of what happened. Campbell and Ammons started calling local churches hoping for help with what they believed was something supernatural, but most refused to listen. Eventually, after listening to Campbell and Ammons talk about the house and visiting it, leaders at one church told them that the Carolina Street house had spirits in it. They recommended the family clean the home with bleach and ammonia and then use oil to draw crosses on every door and window. I wonder what kind of oil. Holy oil? Olive oil? You get a really splurge for the avocado oil. Well, there's holy oil that a lot of churches use, so I'm sure they it was something like that. That they learned that yep. you, you can use this. It's like a basic ass oil, but pre, uh, priests bless it. Oh, kind of like with the holy water. 
Yeah, exactly. But holy oilish. water is just water blessed by a priest. Okay. The mother and grandmother also told the star that they reached out to two clairvoyants who said the family's home was besieged by more than 200 demons. Oh my God, that's not what you want to hear. This made sense to Campbell and Ammons who are heavily religious and that fit with their religious beliefs. I mean, okay, but 200 seems so excessive. I'd be like five maybe, but... The clairvoyants told them that the best thing they could do was to move. But money was tight, and Ammon simply couldn't pull it off. Like, it just wasn't a possibility. Right. So they were stuck in that house. With that option off the table, Ammons took another clairvoyance advice and made an altar in the basement, burned sage and sulfur throughout the house, while a person was that she was with read Psalm 91 aloud. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a quick summary of Psalm 91 is to Call the confidence of God who, if you make him your resting place, will never leave you. Thank you for doing that because I was like, I have no idea what that verse entails. Yeah. It's basically just saying like, you are my God. As long as I believe in you, you will be with me and I and you will never leave. Okay. Is what Psalm 91 is. Okay. Ammon said nothing odd happened for three days after that cleansing, but then it started up again and was immediately worse. Mm. The family said the demons started to possess Ammons and her children, who at the time were ages 7, 9, and 12. No, not the kids. When the possession was evident, the kids' eyes bulged, evil smiles crossed their faces, and their voices deepened every time it happened. Campbell said the demons didn't affect her because she was born with protection from evil. She said that she and others like her have a guardian who protects them, Ammons said that when she was possessed, she felt weak, lightheaded, and warm, and her body would shake, and then she would feel out of control. And she said, you can tell it's different than just feeling sick. You can tell it's something supernatural. Mm -hmm. After dealing with these extreme cases for about a month, they went to their family physician because they're like, okay, these, like, the church is not helpful. These clairvoyants said to move. Maybe... Maybe it is something medical. Maybe there's something in the air. Like something, they're trying to find an excuse that's something they can fix. I mean, fingers crossed. Right. It's like, what, air, air gas. <laughs> uh, so they air went gas. to their, their family physician, Dr. Jeffrey Onyekuyu, and uh, that was on April 19th of 2012. Ammon said she told him what they were going through, hoping he might understand, but the doctor said, just told the star it was bizarre, He said, 20 years, and I've never heard anything like this in my life. I was scared myself when I walked into the room. In the medical notes about the visit, the doctor wrote that there were delusions of ghosts in the home and hallucinations. What Ammons and Campbell say happened next also is detailed in the Department of Child Services report on the family. Mm -hmm. So these are in the doctor's reports and the CPS reports. You kind of wonder if CPS would have been called if they were a white family. Yeah. Hmm. Campbell said Ammon's sons cursed the doctor in demonic voices, raging at him. Medical staff said the youngest boy was lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him. Medical staff said that? Medical staff said that. Okay. And according to the CPS report, the boy abruptly passed out and wouldn't come to. Uh, Campbell had to cradle the boy in her arms while Amons held the other the other kids, because all like the whole family was present at these appointments. But they're totally just doing it for attention, guys. 
Someone from the doctor's office called 911. The doctor said seven or eight police officers and multiple ambulances showed up. He recalled, quote, everyone was, they couldn't figure out exactly what was happening, unquote. Meanwhile, at that point, somebody called the Department of Child Services and asked the agency to investigate Ammons for possible child abuse or neglect. Okay. The caller, who is not named in the uh, child services report, Mm -hmm. believed that the children were performing for Ammons and that she was encouraging their behavior. Okay, some of that I could maybe see, except for the nurses being like, one of the children was thrown across the room with no help. Yeah. Uh, DCS family case manager Valerie Washington was asked to handle the initial investigation. She interviewed the family in the hospital. And while she spoke with Ammons, the seven-year-old boy started growling with his teeth showing. His eyes rolled back into his head. The boy locked his hands around his older brother's throat and refused to let go until the adults pried his hands open. Later that evening, Washington and registered nurse Willis Lee Walker brought the two boys into a small exam room for an interview while Campbell, their grandmother, joined them. Mm -hmm. The seven-year-old stared at his brother's eyes and began to growl again, and the Department of Child Services report says the seven-year-old boy said to his brother, it's time to die, I will kill you. That's troublesome. While the youngest boy spoke, the older brother started headbutting his grandmother Campbell in the stomach. What the fuck? Campbell grabbed her grandson's hand and started praying. According to Washington's original child services report, an account corroborated by the nurse Walker, Mm -hmm. the nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backward up a wall to the ceiling. He then flipped over Campbell, landed on his feet, and never let go of his grandmother's hand. What? Walker told the star, he walked up the wall, flipped over her, and stood there. There's no way he could have done that. Unquote. Okay. Uh, Walker, who said he previously believed in demons and spirits, thought the boy's behavior had some demonic spirit to it, but could also have been the result of a mental illness. I mean, uh, he's, so he's a... I mean, a lot of people who work in the medical field are in, inclined to find a scientific explanation. And I love that. I do think that physics should be taken into account, though, and gravity. <laughs> like, that's also science. The next day, the Department of Child Services took emergency steps by taking custody of the children without a court order. Mm. Ammons Latoya was mm-hmm. devastated. She said, we'd already been through so much and fought so hard for our lives. It was obvious we were a team and we were beating it, whatever we were fighting. We made it through it together as a team and then they separated us, unquote. The Reverend Michael McNoit was a leading Bible study in his living room on the morning of April 20th of 2012 when he received a call from the hospital chaplain. McNoit had been a priest at St. Stephen Martyr Parish in Maryville, Indiana for more than 10 years but he had never received a request like this one. The chaplain asked him to perform an exorcism on Ammon's nine-year-old son. Okay. The reverend agreed to the interview. Um, He was going to do it Sunday, that next Sunday after Mass. Mm -hmm. The first step, he said, was ruling out natural causes for what Ammon's and her family were experiencing. He visited Ammon's and Campbell in the Carolina Street home on April 22nd of 2012. For two hours, Ammons and Campbell detailed the phenomena with him. Then 
Campbell interrupted the interview to point out a flickering bathroom light. The flickering stopped every time the reverend walked in to investigate. Well, that's just frustrating. He attributed that to a demonic presence and then basically saying that there was this weird flickering light. It Mm -hmm. did not follow a pattern. Right. But every time he walked in, it would stop, which he was like, okay, that makes sense. I'm a holy person. The demon might be scared of me or put off by me. So it stops. But when he would walk out, it would start again. Okay. After a four-hour interview, the reverend said that he was convinced the family was being tormented by demons. And he said he also believed there were ghosts in the house. Ugh, demons and ghosts? Yeah. Less than a week later, Washington, accompanied by a police officer, arrived to check the condition of the home. Two other officers, one each from Gary and from Hammond Police Departments, asked to join them out of professional curiosity. Uh, I would also be like, I would really love to come to this demon house. I just want to see. I just want to see. Captain Charles Austin, the Gary police captain, later told the star that he believed in ghosts and supernatural but he didn't believe in demons in this way. Okay. The captain said he changed his mind after visiting this Carolina Street home. Interesting. Austin, a 36-year veteran of the Gary Police Department, said that he initially thought that Latoya Emmons and her family concocted this elaborate tale as a way to make money. Mm -hmm. But after several visits to their home and interviews with witnesses, Austin said simply, I am a believer. And also the fact that they're not making any money. (laughs) Well, I think he was thinking they were going to try to sell their story. Okay. During the initial visit, he snapped photos with his iPhone, and they seemed to have strange silhouettes in them, which kind of tracks with what Campbell was saying, that she saw that figure and then the wet boot prints. Yeah. The radio in his police-issued Ford malfunctioned on the way home. Later, Austin said in the garage at his Gary home, the door would refuse to open, even though the power was on everywhere else. Austin said the driver's seat in his 2005, like his personal vehicle, his Infinity, uh-huh. also started moving backwards and forwards on its own. Mm. And then he found himself starting to believe Ammon's case of paranormal activity, like based on this experience and then multiple visits where things continued to happen. But the mental health professionals evaluating Ammon's and her children remained skeptical. And that's who Child Protective Services is inclined to believe. Okay, wasn't it Child Protective Services and a nurse who watched that kid walk up the wall? Yep. But the thing is, with a lot of these things, when people start these CPS cases, uh-huh. it's it's hard to undo what you start. Yeah. So even if these like people in the department are believing what they're seeing, right? Once you start, once you start this paperwork and start this process, it's something taken very seriously. And you can't backtrack. So if somebody called CPS and they opened a case and then they took the kids away without a warrant, it's not as simply as, oh, never mind, we believe them now, have them back. There's all these steps they have to take. It's a lot of red tape. Got to get through a judge that says, okay, you can have them back. And I am always for protecting kids, but there are so many people that call CPS on bullshit claims. Yeah. Oh, it's a whole thing. Oh, but that's a whole other, oh, that's a whole other thing. DPS successfully petitioned Lake Juvenile Court for temporary wardship of these three children. So after they had taken the children out of the home without a warrant, within this time they were able to get temporary wardship while they figured out what was going on in the home with Ammons and Campbell. Okay. Wait, where, what does that mean happened to them? 
So they house the two older children at St. Joseph's Carmelite Home in East Chicago. Okay. And Ammon's youngest son was sent to Christian Haven in Wheatfield for psychiatric evaluation. That's the one that was doing the demon voices and the psychotic grin and that kind of stuff. That is, Chicago is so far away from Gary, Indiana. Why did they have to take them so far away? Probably because that was the only facility that was equipped for that. Oh, so sad. Clinical psychologist Stacy Wright said that the boy, this they're talking about the youngest one here, mm-hmm. well, he tended to act possessed when he was challenged, redirected, or asked questions he didn't want to answer. In her evaluation, Wright wrote that he seemed coherent and logical except when he talked about demons. Wright believed that he did not suffer from a true psychotic disorder. This appears to be an unfortunate and sad case of a child who has been induced into delusional system perpetrated by his mother and potentially reinforced by other relatives, she wrote in her psychological evaluation. Okay, so the mother convinced the child that he was possessed by demons, therefore he acts like that because he was told that that's what's happening. According to this psychologist, yes. Clinical psychologist Joel Schwartz, who evaluated Ammon's daughter and older son, came to a similar conclusion at the um, at the place in Chicago. Okay. Police and the DPS officials continued to investigate strange happenings in the house while all this was happening. Campbell Ammons, Austin, who was the police captain, mm-hmm. and two other police officers from the initial visit went back to the home after work hours on May 10th of 2012. They were joined by the Reverend, two Lake County officers with a police dog, and a DPS family case manager named Samantha Illick. A Lake County officer took his police dog around the home, but the dog didn't show any interest in any particular area, according to the police records. Everyone else headed into the basement. Illick touched some strange liquid she saw dripping in the basement. She said it felt slippery yet sticky between her fingers. The reverend blessed some salt, which he said is a barrier for evil, mm-hmm. and spread it under the stairs and throughout the basement. On the main floor, officers noticed an oil-like substance dripping from the Venetian blinds in a bedroom, but they couldn't figure out what it was, like what it was or where it was coming from. Yeah. To make sure Campbell and Ammons hadn't poured oil in the blinds, two of the officers used paper towels to clean it off. The officers sealed the room for 25 minutes and stood nearby to make sure nobody else walked in. But when they came back in, the oil had reappeared, according to police reports. Sounds like she didn't do it. The reverend wrote a report detailing his findings and asking Bishop Dale Melzick's permission to perform an exorcism on Ammons. The reverend said Melzick had never authorized an exorcism in 21 years as a bishop of the Diocese of Gary. Melzick initially denied his request to do a church-sanctioned exorcism, which, for those of you who are not involved in the church, that's a big deal. Like, exorcisms aren't just something you find. Like, to do a Christian exorcism, you need permission of higher-ups in the church. They take it very seriously. That's true. After this initial denial, the bishop told the reverend to contact other priests who have performed exorcism. He said he needed other priests to give him the ritual for a minor exorcism, which does not require church approval. And the priests he consulted told him told him to look it up on the internet. What? Yeah. So like these guys are taking it seriously, and these other priests he contacted were like, "Yeah, look it up. You'll you'll figure it out." He said he did an intense blessing on the Carolina Street home to expel bad spirits. 
just doesn't seem very professional that he's like, look it up on the internet. Like, this is a holy ritual. That wasn't the bishop that said that. It was these oh, other okay. priests. Okay. Still. The other priest, like the bishop told him other priests to contact. Mm-hmm. And then they were the ones that were like, oh, look it up. Google it. Next time I need to do an exorcism, I guess I'm just going to Google it. Who's ki- who are we kidding? We would have done that anyway. After this intense blessing, the reverend performed a minor exorcism on Ammons. The ritual consisted of prayers, statements, and appeals to cast out demons. Two police officers and Illick, the um, DPS case manager, attended the ritual. Illick said she left believing that something was going on. Although she wouldn't go as far as saying it was demonic, she did say she got chills during the nearly two-hour rite. Can you imagine just hanging out, being a social worker or a police officer, and you get to, like, tag along on an exorcism, and you'd be like, (laughs) have I had a week, y'all? Quote, we felt like someone was in the room with you, someone breathing down your neck, unquote. Gross. After the minor rite, the bishop uh, gave the reverend permission to do a full exorcism on Ammons. The ritual is the same as the minor exorcism, but more powerful because it has the backing of the Catholic Church. Okay. Fucking, yeah, it's the church. It it is the church. I just feel like they're going around a lot of little loop-de-loops when they could have just done it correctly the first time. They ultimately performed three major exorcisms on Ammons, two in English and the last one in Latin, in June of 2012. In the final exorcism at the end of 2012, or in the end of June 2012, Mm -hmm. uh, the Reverend said he prayed and berated the demons in Latin rather than English because it's more powerful. Demons hate Latin. That would be the last time Ammons saw him. After this, she and her mother drove back to Indianapolis where they say they now live without fear. So in this time, not only were they doing these, like, church rites, and they were trying to figure out what the hell they were going to do. Right. Like, get money, get out of this house. They weren't just, like, sitting back and waiting for it to happen. Right. And they were finally able to get out of this house in Gary and move to Indianapolis. Oh, good. Ammon's old home on Carolina Street became an object of local curiosity. Yeah. So much so that the owner and landlord, Charles Reed, had to call the Gary Police Department to ask officers to stop driving by the house. (laughs) Like I said, those officers, that officer went to work the next day and was like, yeah, the week I'm having, y'all. So several police officers were driving by, and this landlord was like, stop it, you're scaring the new tenant. (laughs) They're like, no, they don't think you're a criminal. They just think you might be possessed. (laughs) As for that tenant... After the family moved out, the subsequent renter found herself hounded by curiosity seekers, not just the police, but other people that showed up. At one point, she called the police to complain of reporters and photographers who were continually coming onto the property. The landlord said there were no problems in the home, demonically, before or after Ammons and her family lived there. Reed said... I thought I'd heard it all. This was a new one to me. My belief system has a hard time jumping over that bridge. Mm. Mm -hmm. When told of the Catholic Church's involvement in the situation, however, Reed said that it did make him less skeptical. So obviously he's a religious man. Right. Ammons regained custody of her three children in November of 2012 after about six months of being separated. Oh, that's so hard. 
DCS continued to check on the children and make sure they were going to school until the case was closed in February of 2013. So they checked on them for a few months to make sure everything was cool. Everything stayed cool. Cool, cool. Ammons called her children's return the happiest day of her life. She said they screamed and jumped up and down after she picked them up from the office in Gary. It was just awesome, Ammons said. I hadn't been that happy in God knows how long. The children said they felt safe after they left the house on Carolina Street, and the three left their demonic voices and complaints behind them. No reports of anything with behaviors like that after they left. Good, because that was really creepy. The uh, child services family case manager wrote in team meeting notes dated January 10th of 2013 that no demonic presence or spirits are in the home, but she did not return calls from the, the star seeking comment. So, like, she they have a report, which Ammons released, but she didn't, like, talk to the She paper. didn't officially talk to them? Yeah. In that report, she said the family is no longer fixated solely on religion to explain or cope with the children's behavioral issues. And that was listed in the official request for dismissal of wardship in 2013. So they're, like, that whole thing is done now. Squeaky clean. Ready to go. No more demons. You cannot visit this location. Even if they had opened it to the public after uh-huh. everything, which they didn't. It was a rental thing. Uh, because Douche Baggins bought the home in oh, 2014. Uh, my God. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Douche Baggins <laughs> bought the home in 2014 for $35,000. And then demolished it two years later. Why? After he filmed a documentary in it titled Demon House. That's the Demon House. Yes. So that was released in March 16th of 2018. I did not watch the documentary. I did not watch it either. Because douchebaggins. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I know the title. A quote from Baggins says, Something was inside that house that had the ability to do things I'd never seen before. Things that others carrying the highest form of credibility couldn't explain either. There was something there that was very dark, yet highly intelligent and powerful. But I don't believe fucking Zach Baggins for shit. I think he bought the house because it was $35,000 for a house. He could afford it. He could make this documentary that was going to wrap a bunch of people into it and then destroy it. That's Although what I, I don't really get why he needed to destroy it. Well, what was he going to do with it after? I really don't know. That's why rent it. But see, here's the thing. He makes this documentary detailing the house and all the things that could happen in it, right? And And it's this demon house. And then he what sells it to somebody and then the next owners are like, I never experienced anything. They're they're he literally destroyed it so that he could keep the credibility on this thing that he purchased. Yeah, and like no one could prove him wrong. Exactly. Except for that the renters in between the folks renter. in the store is only one. One renter in between the stories, like, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Joel Nickel of the Skeptical Inquirer said, In summary, no demons possessed anyone in this case except in the figurative sense. What was really unleashed were dark aspects of superstition, ancient dogma, lust for notoriety, the greed of cynical hucksters, and the stubborn unwillingness of some to be reasoned with. So you've got the Baggins end, and then you've got the Skeptical Inquirer end. So, like, I kind of get the feeling that the Skeptical Inquirer is full of Redditor-type people who bag on others who feel differently than they do. Yeah. But it is another perspective to go into. 
And if we're going to do the left of skeptic thing, we've got to approach both sides. Yeah, I I think that the skeptical inquirer is a little harsh. Yeah. It's pretty harsh. For her part, Ammons, like, released this information, like I said at the beginning, uh-huh. knowing fully that it was not going to paint her in the best light. Right. And she said that it was not the psychologist who resolved her problems, but God. And when you hear something like this, you don't assume it's not real because I've lived it. I know it's real. So basically she's saying, I don't care if you believe me or not. I spent these six months without my kid. This or without my kids. This was not something I wanted to do. I'm just putting the information out there. You believe what you want to believe. Right. So, and that is the story of the, uh, let's see what the demon house, the 200 demons house slash the Ammons haunting. In Gary, Indiana. The song from Music Man really didn't talk up Gary, Indiana the way I, it should have. I know, right? Jeez, we, somebody should really do like a goth rock version of Gary, Indiana. <laughs> I bet there's, I bet it, but we could find it on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, on a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what are you going to give the Ammons Haunting? I'm going to give it a four. Nice. Me too. Yeah. Like, uh, definitely the Skeptical Inquirer was rough. It seems like they had documentation from professionals who had, like, they wouldn't get anything out of the case. Yep. Saying that really weird-ass things were happening. So I guess I don't really know how how people explain that. And I my, my main reason for a four is that I'm not saying that there couldn't have been scientific explanations involved, but... Like you said, there's a lot of professionals that had parts of the report that did not have an explanation. And they would have no, they would get nothing out of it. Exactly. And also, again, and I mean, I know I'm sounding biased here, but Ammons has no reason to release this shit. Right. Like, and she released it before the Baggins stuff happened. She did release a lot of this information prior to that. So it's not like it was like, oh, like, the guy from Ghost Hunters is releasing this, I'll get money. Right. Like, she thinks she was doing the right thing by releasing that information as, like, a warning. Like, this is the truth of what happened? Yep. And even though she knows that that was not going to make her look good, especially considering so many people don't believe that kind of stuff. Right. I'm going four. I'm sticking with you on the four. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep. So, that was my story. Uh, I've had that on my list for a while. Yeah, you have. Like a year. But I knew that I needed the time to fully look into it because anything that involves kids in that way, I want to make sure I'm telling right. I did extensively research that. So hopefully that like if if somebody like Latoya Ammons were to hear it, they would feel that I presented it in a good light. Mm, You did it justice. That's what I'm trying to do. I don't want anybody to think I'm mocking them in that situation. All right. I I think you did good. The only person I want to mock there is Baggins. I mean, (laughs) the default. (laughs) What do you got for me this week? So over the last couple of months, I've really bounced around on topics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went from true crime January stories into stories about reincarnation, Peggy the doll, Isabel Gowdy, the suspected witch, the number 13, the toxic lady. And I think it's time to get back to my roots. Mansion? Big old haunted building. Yeah. It's not a mansion, though. But you do love a big building. I love a big building. 
Yeah, so tonight I'm going to tell you about the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. Penitentiary is not a jail. It's bigger than a jail. It's a a prison, right? Guess what? This penitentiary is the reason why we say the word penitentiary. Okay. Okay. And I tell you why. Okay. I'm just writing it down here. Penitentiary. How the fuck do you spell penitentiary? Pen. My autocorrect won't even get there. Penitentiary. I mean, I have a piece of shit uncle that's been in and out of penitentiaries his entire <laughs> life, so I should know this. Let's write that down, just so I can look it up later for the for the posts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually spent a really good deal of time double and triple checking that we did not already do this one. I I don't recall it because I thought for sure that we had um it was on BuzzFeed Unsolved. Oh. And I think that that's why That's yep, yep. But um yeah, so I didn't find it on our list, so here we go. The Eastern State Penitentiary or Cherry Hill, as it was originally called, first opened its doors on October 25th, 1829 after 7 years of construction. The design of the penitentiary is credited to English-born architect John Haviland, who was actually a major player in the American neoclassical architecture in Philadelphia in the 19th century. Like, he has several big projects under his belt. At the time of the prison's construction, it was not only the largest building constructed in the United States, but was also, by 1829 standards, the most expensive public structure. Okay. And when it was completed, it was meant to hold as many as 250 prisoners. And this model of prison, sometimes called the wagon wheel, would quickly become replicated in more than 300 prisons worldwide. Rock me, mom, like a wagon wheel. Rock me, mom, any way you feel. Hey, prison, mama, rock, rock me. me. See, most prisons in the United States <laughs> use the Arburn system, which uh, is also known as the New York system or the congregated system. And the Arburn system, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, is, quote, a penal method of the 19th century in which persons worked during the day and then were kept in solitary confinement at night uh, with enforced silence at all times. Enforced silence, like if they talk, they're going to kick the shit out of you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the silent system evolved during the 1820s in the Auburn prison in Auburn, New York. Later innovations at Auburn were the lockstep, which is where uh, folks would march in a single file, placing the right hand on the shoulder of the man ahead and facing towards the guard. Also, the striped suit, a classic, the black and white striped suit. Yes. Two foot extensions of the walls between cells and special seating arrangements at meals, all of which were designed to ensure strict silence, unquote. That's all I like when I like think about something like that. It's just like that every, scary sound. That scary sound. You're just like, if this prison is, is completely that from It Follows? No, no, that's from uh, 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 now I'm gonna say it and I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it's from Friday the 13th. Oh, yes, 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 yes. You are, you are, you are correct. You are correct. So that was the Auburn system. And that's how most of the prisons in the United States, like, did it up until then. Whereas the Pennsylvania system 
uh, which was first implemented at the Eastern State Penitentiary, was, quote, a method based on the principle that solitary confinement fosters penitence and encourages reformation. Um, And this is actually why they call them penitentiaries. Oh. Because it encourages penitence. Penitence. It's a very Catholic approach. It really is. So prisoners were kept in solitary confinement in cells 16 feet high, nearly 12 feet long, and 7.5 feet wide, with an exercise yard, which was completely enclosed to prevent contact among prisoners, uh, was attached to each of the cells. So each prisoner had their own private cell and their own little exercise yard. Prisoners saw... Exercise yard? Do they say how big it is? Exercise area. Because <laughs> I feel like it's going to be like a small little space. Outdoor tiny park. Outdoor jail cell. Yeah. <laughs> okay, just checking. Yeah. <laughs> and prisoners saw no one except for institutional officers and an occasional visitor. Unquote. Which, I'm sorry, but also not sorry. Both of these are stupid. Yeah. Like, aside from any other conditions that I'm still going to tell you about, whether together but silent at all times, or even worse, solitary confinement for years on end, and not even being able to physically see any other person other than the occasional guard, why on earth did anyone think that this was humane or even stupider, an effective way to deal with prisoners? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where there has been... I feel like study after study of people show that this doesn't work. No. And, no, it doesn't. And people still think that it is at times an effective way to do it. It's obviously, this was back when, what was the timeline? This was in 1820. Yeah, so like, <laughs> I mean, it's a long time ago, but even then, it, we haven't evolved we that really much have not. in that time. No. So this, the Pennsylvania system, actually ended up influencing most European prisons, Uh, Like I said, the design was replicated in more than 300 prisons worldwide. So they did this extremely stupid way of handling prisoners that was very inhumane. And then people around the world were like, aha, let's do that too. Though eventually, uh, folks in the U.S. said that it was just too costly for prisoners to have their own outdoor area and and cells. (laughs) And curiously had, quote, delirious effects on the minds of the prisoners. It's. You think? <laughs> really? It's spending too- years all by yourself. It's, it's, it's going to mess with their minds. I mean, it messes with their minds, but also it costs too much. Let's privatize the prison system. Yeah. That's yeah. what they got to eventually. Yeah. Let's stack them on top of each other. Yeah. Like, let's just bunk beds everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they thought that solitary confinement was the best way to handle prisoners of, I guess, any kind of crime as well. And actually, in the original design, the cells were even more constricted, uh, but the layout was deemed impractical. Like, they wanted it to be... Just to be clear, she put quotes around impractical, like that was... That was the reasoning for not doing it. Like, it's impractical when really... I mean, legitimately, it it was impractical because they couldn't really have prisoners get in or out of the cells very easily. Yeah. But also, that was their reasoning, not the whole, like, fact that it's super inhumane. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they really wanted the only contact that a prisoner would have is when a guard would open up a little slot and slide them in their meal. 
That was it. Like you could see a hand and that was it for years. So instead, they went with cells that had these big, heavy metal and wooden doors that would allow prisoners to enter and leave the cell block, um, but would also be big and heavy enough to filter out like a lot of the noise so prisoners couldn't talk to each other. And when they were allowed to leave, the hallways were designed with a church vibe, because obviously. (laughs) But I guess they couldn't see the church vibe, because if a person was required to leave their cell, they could only do so with a bag over their head to avoid seeing other people. Uh, These cell doors were also smaller than standard doors, which some believe was meant to minimize the prisoner's movement, therefore making it harder to attack the guards. Mm Mm-hmm while others believed that it was meant to force the inmates to bow while entering or exiting their cells because penance. Because church. Mm -hmm. And the cells, which were made of concrete, also donned a single glass skylight. That's kind of pretty. uh, Representing the eye of God, suggesting to the prisoners that God was always watching them. And these skylights, along with any windows that the cell might have, were the only source of light for the inmates. Holy shit. So if it was dark, it was really dark in there. So a lot of the design of the Eastern Saint Penitentiary has religious inspirations, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Christian inspirations, because, quote, the church viewed imprisonment usually in isolation, as an instrument that would modify sinful and disruptive behavior. The time spent in prison would help inmates reflect on their crimes committed, uh, giving them the mission for redemption. Unquote. I mean, these are the same motherfuckers that believe abstinence-only education is going to be effective, so are we really surprised? No. They, They think that it's all about environment, so if they can take away any stimulation of the environment, they no longer have the desire to do sinful acts, and to take away that stimulation, they lock people in a, in a prison yeah. cell for years on end. Yeah. And they could reflect on their crimes in both their cells, as well as their own little exercise yard. They you know that little tiny garden. Kind of reminds me of uh, in Parks and Rec, when they have like the, the city's smallest garden. Oh. I don't want to think about it that way, though, because that scene is so sweet when she's just like, I'm done being a steamroller, and then Ben kisses her. It's so cute. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is worse. This is way worse. This is way worse. That's amazing. This is terrible. So they had these little exercise yards, uh, which they would be allowed in on like an alternating schedule because no prisoners were let out next to each other Mm -hmm. in fear that they would communicate. Though, one hashtag fun fact, some of them were allowed to garden in their little yards and others even had pets, which is kind of cute. That is very cute. Look, I'm trying to bring some sort of goodness into this story. Gardens and pets. And speaking of pets, there is actually a story. We're jumping ahead about 100 years. Real, just real quick. Uh, because there is a story that in 1924, Pennsylvania Governor Clifford uh, Pinnock allegedly sentenced a dog to a life sentence at the Eastern State Penitentiary. A dog? Uh, the dog was known as Pep, the cat-murdering dog. <laughs> and they were accused of killing the governor's wife's beloved pet. Uh, Pep was even assigned a case number, number C2559, which can be seen in his actual mugshot. Oh my fucking God. 
though the actual reason for Pep's presence in the Pep's presence in the prison, uh, though the actual reason for Pep's presence in the prison is actually under to some debate. Like maybe maybe he killed the governor's wife's cat, uh, or as a more recent newspaper states, the governor just donated his own dog to the prison to create like inmate morale. Yeah, but. Like, don't give the don't give the dog a rap sheet. If you're gonna donate the dog, <laughs> just donate the dog. Don't like force his name to be slandered for the rest of his life. Maybe they just the after after life. Maybe they just really wanted him to have like that cute mugshot, and they needed a reason for it. I know I'm jumping ahead, but is the dog a ghost? No. Oh damn it! I don't think so. Not that I could find. Damn it! That's the one thing I could have gotten out of this where I'm like. Hell yeah, dog ghost. <laughs> dog ghost. But okay. We've had tons of cat ghosts, very few dog ghosts. I, you know, that's true. That's true. So I don't know exactly why Pep was in there. I don't know if he was Pep the cat murdering dog in real life or if the governor's just like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe it'd be nice if the prisoners had a friend. Everyone loves pets. Um, and either way, I really hope that no cats were harmed in the situation. <laughs> either way. Yes. So... Anyways, these cells at the Eastern State Penitentiary were actually pretty advanced for the time. According to Wikipedia, each cell had a faucet with running water over a flushable toilet, which would then be remotely flushed twice a week by the guards. So it was only flushed twice a week, but at least it existed and it was flushable versus hey. a lot of the buckets that we've heard about in other stories. Yeah. I mean, it's not a chamber pot. We'll take it. Exactly. And they had running water. They also had hot water pipes that ran through each cell, which, like a radiator, uh, would keep them, they they used reasonably warm during the winter in like little quotations, so. Warm-ish. Better than freezing. Not completely freezing. Right. An attempt at maybe a little warmth. Yes. You know all the prisoners were like huddled up against those pipes as close as they could. And or like, trying to get as far away from them as possible. If you've ever like lived in a house with radiators, which most of my houses have been, sometimes they barely work. Sometimes they work ungodly well. And then you're like, I'm dying. <laughs> Can I go out into my tiny exercise yard? Please. The original design of the building was essentially like seven spokes radiating off of a central point. This is why it was the wagon wheel. Um, and that these radiating spokes would end up being the cell blocks. And they were just going to be one story tall. Like the squirrel cage, but not rotating? Because um, the squirrel cage was like a, a multi-thing, but then they had the rotating thing at the center. No, because the squirrel cage was more of like a, a it was multiple levels. Yeah. And circular. This is, there's a center point. And then there's these long things with cells on both sides. No, that makes sense. That makes the wagon wheel thing make sense. I think I just needed you to explain that for me to fully grasp it. Hand motions. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So, and the original conceptualization was that one level on each of these cell blocks would totally suffice the, what was it, 250 people that they thought they needed to fit in there. But can you guess what happened? Overpopulation. Yes, before the third cell block was even completed, the the prison prison was already over capacity. So work began on cell blocks four, five, six, and seven. All of them now having two stories 
to accommodate the increasing number of people incarcerated there. And cell block seven was completed in 1835. Because what did they love to do? They love to build jails, penitentiaries, uh, mental health facilities, everything with an idea of this number they can accommodate in mind and then completely overload it for the, like, just for inhumane practices. Yeah. They just shove more people in there. Yep. Luckily, it seems like most of these folks, because of the setup of the cells with the solitary confinement, they didn't want people doubling up. Yeah. And they wanted them to have these little private workout yard thingies, um, that it wasn't too many people like stacked on top of each other, but rather they just had too many people. So they had to keep building more and more places. Got it. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Well, so far, of course, by 1836, the original prison design was complete and it covered an area of 11 acres and had state of the art plumbing sewage system and 450 centrally heated cells. The Eastern State Penitentiary was considered an architectural marvel. Like, tourists would actually travel just to go look at it. What the fuck? In fact, in 1842, Charles Dickens visited the United States. He always seemed like a dick. Well, he visited Niagara Falls, and then he also went and just swung on over to Pennsylvania and visited the Eastern State Penitentiary. He's like, what am I going to see? Some beautiful, gorgeous nature waterfalls and, uh, you know... A place where people will uh, be treated horribly. Yeah. Well, you know, it was considered world-renowned. Like, everyone was basing their prisons off of this. So he's like, I guess, yeah, I'll go check it out, I suppose. Later on, he would write of the Eastern State Penitentiary, this system is rigged, strict and hopeless solitary confinement, and I believe it, in its effect, to be cruel and wrong. Okay. And I agree. Okay, yes, yes. So he turned out not to be so dickens Got it. Got it. Did you write that down or did you just come up with that right now? I'm so proud of you in this moment. Thanks. Then in 1877, four new cell blocks without the attached exercise yards were constructed in the spaces between existing cell blocks. So it's not even the 1900s, and they're already starting to like see the decline in quality and I was going to say quality of life. There's not really much quality of life here, but yet they're taking, (laughs) they're making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. So then 34 years later, cell block number 12 was complete. But where did they fit it? You might ask. And it's an annex. Basement. Well, what they did was wedge it between cell block six and seven. And this block would consist of three floors, each with 40 cells. So now there's just no exercise yard. And so there's they, more people stacked on top of between each Between six and seven, uh-huh. they just jammed another one, made it taller than the rest. Yeah. And were like, we're not going to give them give them space. This is just the extra small shit. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. There were no more skylights. Uh, God was not looking down on these folks. Instead, each cell just had a narrow window to allow for light, which just seems so incredibly claustrophobic to me. Like, I cannot even No, absolutely. Absolutely. And then a couple of years later, in 1913, the whole Pennsylvania system of confinement via solitude was just abandoned. 
You see, it just wasn't working. What a no surprise. No fucking duh. <laughs> Uh, and it actually starts to break down long before they actually officially abandoned it. They were like, hmm, this doesn't seem to be working. Also, let's not just keep trying it that. for 20 more years. <laughs> <laughs> and there were also a series of escapes. So the first one happened in 1832. He was like, um, I want to say he was like the warden's butler or something. And he just kind of like, like lowered himself over the wall. That was in uh, 1832. And then the same guy escaped again in 1837 <laughs> in the exact same way. They're like, oh, we caught him really quick. He could go back to being the butler, though. And then he's like, ha I'm out. <laughs> like, we caught him, but we're not going to do anything to fix how he escaped. <laughs> so he just did it again. <laughs> Fuck this shit, I'm out. But in July of 1923, a prisoner by the name of Leo Callahan, along with five accomplices... Um, armed with pistols, successfully scaled the east wall of the prison after holding up a group of unarmed guards. All in all, over 100 people escaped from Eastern State Penitentiary during its 142 years of active use, but Callahan was one of just four people who escaped and remained at large. Whoa, wait, so over 100 people escaped, but Four people stayed at large. Found. Yeah. That's a good percentage of recovery. Uh, dude. So all of his accomplices got caught. Um, one of them even made it all the way to Hawaii before he was apprehended again. And Can you imagine right back. making it to Hawaii and then being like, never mind, you're going back there. Like, no, I thought I'd be safe here. Not I'm just so safe. I thought I'd be warm here. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting in that cell in the middle of winter with a sort of heat. <laughs> with like a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> a radiator pipe. I was on the sand in the beach. <laughs> He's from Pennsylvania. He'd probably never seen the beach before. <laughs> so then in January of 1924, finally, for the very first time ever, prisoners could eat together in the dining hall. Because they got rid of that whole solitary confinement, everyone got to be quiet thing. And tablecloths were actually provided on Sundays and on holidays, as well as holiday decorations, which were described as a moral building factor. So they're like, okay, well, solitary confinement didn't work. I guess these folks can eat together and maybe they can have tablecloths on special occasions and we'll put up a Christmas tree here and there because you know what? It makes people happy and we're obviously very Christian. So we need a tree. My fear. My favorite part is the tablecloths on special occasions. Like, it just makes me think of just like, yeah, we eat on the couch, ex- except for at Thanksgiving where we eat in the dining room. It's right. like that very like, that's when you get nice things. That's when you get nice <laughs> things. Sundays, because it's the Lord's Day and holidays, which are probably all based upon the, Lord. the Lord's Days. Yes. Two years later, construction began on cell block. 14, which was the second three-story cell block on the property. And by now, any space between the cell blocks, pretty much gone. So they used to be like, because there was seven. Yeah. And then they started jamming them in between those seven. So the penitentiary, which was intended to hold 250 people, now held 1,700 people. That is a huge upswing. That is a huge upswing. Okay, now... This is the part that made me think we already covered it, which I kind of already said. Um, I'm pretty sure it's because it's from the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode. But between 1929 and 1930, of course, 
Chicago gangster Al Capone spent eight months here. So much Al Capone. We have talked about, we've been Al, we have been Al Capone adjacent for two years. We're just Al Caponing all up in this bitch. (laughs) An article in the Philadelphia Public Ledger from August 20th, 1929, described Capone's cell. Quote, the whole room was infused with the glow of a desk lamp, which stood on a polished desk. On the once grim walls of the penal chamber hung tasteful paintings, <laughs> and the strains of a waltz were being emitted by a powerful cabinet radio receiver of handsome design and fine finish, unquote. Jesus. But not everyone got the Capone treatment. Pretty much no one except for Capone got the Capone treatment? Yeah, that's why they call it the Capone treatment. He was, <laughs> he was singularly the only person who had a radio and a desk with a lamp. So in 1933, the prisoners were hashtag over it. They set fires in their cells, destroyed workshops over insufficient recreational facilities because they took away their little mm-hmm. little outdoor roaming spot, overcrowding and poor food quality. State troopers were called in to supplement the Philadelphia police force and a prison guard was injured before the inmates were eventually calmed. I really can't blame them. I would want to riot over that shit, too. Yeah, and then a year later, they rioted again. Justifiably, in my opinion. Yeah, this time over low wages. So at some point in time, they ended up, I want to say they became a shoe factory. They, they put the prisoners to work, and but in, they did pay them, though, but the wages were very low, and so they're like, I'm going to riot. To this day, prison complexes are a way to... Uh, get basically slave wages. Yeah, it's it's legal slavery. It exactly is exactly what it is. Yep. So during this this other riot, the prisoners short circuited electrical outlets, started fires, as well as other disturbances. They didn't say what other disturbances, but I guess the electrical outlet short circuiting was was the big one. Yeah. After that, there were a bunch of prison breaks, but everyone was caught, unfortunately. And in, or fortunately, I don't really know what these prisoners did to get caught, so they might be murderers, so I hope they get caught. Well, they, my, you said minor crimes, or you said everything, so like minor crimes or major crimes, like if somebody's arrested because they were trying to steal food to feed their family, I hope they got out. If somebody murdered a bunch of innocents, I hope they got caught, but I still don't hope that they were treated that shittily. You know, like it's right. it's a weird it's a weird balance. It's, it's a, a weird, weird balance. feeling. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. All right. Then in 1953, Eastern State Penitentiary became the State Correctional Institution of Philadelphia, or SCIFA. 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 I don't know. Let the sky fall. Isn't that like an Adele, James Bond song? I have no idea. Okay. Then in 1958, the city of Philadelphia certified Eastern State Penitentiary as a historical property. Mind you, it's still a prison. Oh, okay. In fact, it actually became, it was put on the National Register of Historical Places also while it was an active prison. And I always thought that those things kind of like waited until afterwards. I suppose if somebody views the property as valuable enough, even if it's still in operation, they will, I think churches do this a lot. They'll certify it so that in the event that it closes down, it can't immediately be sold to somebody for commercial purposes. That makes sense because, yeah, at this point, it's already like 120 years old. Mm-hmm. 
1961, the cell blocks were then desegregated, which segregation is stupid. I don't agree with it, but I don't even want to imagine the kind of violence that the black population had to endure when suddenly the cell blocks were desegregated in 1961. Yeah, yeah. Also in 1961 was the biggest riot that the Eastern State Penitentiary had ever seen. And it all started when one prisoner named John Klausenberg tricked a guard into opening the cell of another prisoner named Manuel Madronal. Uh, With each of their cells open, Klausenberg and Madrono overpowered the guards and had a had a several hour battle that began. So all these prisoners got out, started with these two guys. Uh, This battle happened. It lasted like pretty much all day. And eventually a large force of police guards and state troopers came to reclaim the battle royale. Yeah. I didn't know how to respond to that. (laughs) Yeah. But this riot really started the talks that maybe they should just shut the whole thing down. Like, we now have three riots. Obviously, this isn't working, guys. So what the fuck? Great. Yeah. We were only supposed to have 250. Now we're at 1,700. It's just too much. And in January of 1970, Eastern State Penitentiary closed. Most of the prisoners were sent to the State Correctional Institution at Greater Ford, wherever that is. Then from 1971 to the mid-1980s, Eastern State was all but abandoned. And the fiddle, Philip, and the, the fil- Philadelphia, <laughs> the Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia Streets Department used the penitentiary grounds for storage. Um, it's probably where they put all their snowplows. That's where they put their cream cheese. Philadelphia cream cheese. I was like, what the fuck does their that have to do steaks. with the Philadelphia Streets Department? <laughs> Philadelphia. So, and then vandals came in and they smashed the skylights and the windows as they do. And, pretty, an urban forest grew in the cells and in the halls. Like that. I like that. Yeah. Like some Last of Us shit. And this was so cute. So according to the Eastern State Penitentiary website, Dan McLeod, the last city caretaker, continued to feed a family of stray cats on the property. Nice. They made a point to put that on the the website. As they should. Yeah. Kitty, 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 kitty. Also during this time, the mayor says that they should just tear the building down and build a new criminal justice center. I like how they use the word justice in there. It just doesn't seem like it's <laughs> it's very justice. Anyway, uh, but instead, the city of Philadelphia takes the title to the building, um, paying the state of Pennsylvania just over $400,000 for it. Uh, then there's a bunch of back and forth about what to do with the building. And in 1991, Airbnb. That didn't exist in 1991. Okay, fine. But in 1991, a very memorable Halloween for Minnesota. I don't know what's happening in Philadelphia at the time, but the first Halloween fundraiser takes place on Halloween night to raise money to create a daytime tour program. A few hundred people attended the first year, and since then, a Halloween fundraiser, uh, once called Terror Behind the Walls, and which is now known as Halloween Nights at Eastern State Penitentiary, has the been, second name is way more like descriptive. <laughs> yeah. So it's been held at the penitentiary each fall. Um, I wonder if they got some flack about terror behind the walls. And they're like, 
We'll just call it Halloween nights at Eastern State. Yeah, like we treated prisoners very poorly. Pretty fucking awful. It was quite terrible like behind these what, walls. What kind of terror behind the walls? Oh, you mean like haunted or wait? Oh, you mean just the Physically. general thing oh. that uh, prisoners dealt with? Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it, got it, got it. So eventually they realize that tours are the building's bread and butter. And the Eastern State Penitentiary is kept in a state of preserved ruin and continues to operate as a museum and historical site. It's open year-round for tours and special events are held throughout the year. It's like open from like, I want to say 10 to 5, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year is what the thing is. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah. One of them... Of these tours is a ghost tour because the Eastern State Penitentiary is said to be haunted AF. And it actually sounds like it has been for a while. Okay. 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 Now we get to it. We get to the reason it's on this podcast. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So back in 1929 to 1930 when Al Capone was staying there, although he had the nicest of the cells, if you remember the quote about the desk, a lamp, paintings, and a radio... Despite all of that, he did not have the best time, as Al was said to be haunted by the ghost of James Clark, who was one of the victims of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. Oh. Allegedly, Capone would scream every night in fright, screaming at Jimmy to go away and leave him alone. Could it be he was just haunted by the ghosts of his past? Like, the memories of all the terrible, his conscience? Like, could it be that Al Capone just had PTSD? Possibly. I mean, he's the one who, who did the massacre. Yeah, but still, like, I don't you're know. a shitty person. You could still have PTSD. At a certain point, though, he killed so many people. You're not wrong. Why Why would Jimmy stick out to him so much? Because they were lovers. <gasps> oh, my gosh. They were, like, they were friends, like, roommates best friends history hates lovers sorry maybe they were maybe they were lovers and then i'm starting the rumor right here right now al capone was gay and then al jimmy was gonna tell people and al's like i can't have you do that That's I'm, what I'm, I'm a big crime boss in chicago al capone was gay all right all right Would, there's no shame in it but you know what don't don't massacre your lover there you go also in the 1940s, uh, both prisoners and guards began having several unusual experiences and unexplained sightings, many of which involved Kayla's favorite, shadow people, and oh, unexplained noises. No. Can you imagine being locked in a cell and like 24-7 and there are just shadow people and unexplained noises and you can't even leave because you're can't, in jail. You can't leave and then there's just like the tiny window in the skylights. There's not even anything. Oh, God. Yeah, it's dark and you see someone So you're surrounded by your shadows yes. anyway and then there's a shadow that looks like a person. You're like, is it a person or is I, it a shadow? You can't even turn the light on. That is there's no light. Terrifying. Yeah. So today, many people have reported that cell block 12 is an area of high paranormal activity. Uh, where cackling and whispers are heard, and the apparition of a prisoner is seen. Was 12 the first one to be built between, is that the one that was between 6 and 7? I believe so. And so, like, on top of it already not being comfortable in this place, that was the first, like, really, 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 like, even more uncomfortable place. Yeah, it was the first uh, step of the decline. Yes. The really intense decline. Cell Block 6 is known for shadowy figures darting along the walls. Fuck that. 
In cell block four, many have seen ghostly anguished faces and heard loud whispers. On one occasion, a locksmith was working in the area who uh, was removing, he was removing an old lock from a cell door and he had a wild experience. (laughs) So he said that it felt as if he was overcome by a massive force, which he described as a negative, horrible energy that exploded out of the cell. He was found himself completely unable to move or speak. All the while, distorted forms swirled around the cell block, <laughs> one of which appeared to beckon to him. Don't like that. Don't like that at all. No beckoning, please. Thank you. Folks have reported seeing the silhouette of a guard in one of the watchtowers, sudden orbs or streaks of light appearing, the feeling of unseen people tapping them on the shoulder, getting overwhelming sensations of being watched, and in general having feelings of dread. Yeah, I don't like any of that. Yeah. On the third floor of one cell block, numerous visitors say that they heard the sound of cell doors suddenly opening and then slamming shut. The catwalk is an area of many paranormal events that have occurred. Here, a shadow figure was caught on video. People have felt extreme temperature fluctuations, and one visitor captured a male EVP saying, I'm lonely, which is really sad. That's very sad. Visitors and staff report disembodied screams, cries in pain, uh, sadistic laughter, and whispers throughout the prison. Others have reported the sound of cell doors, uh, handles jiggling. Uh, Furniture being dragged across the floors, large objects rolling on the roof, and ghostly footsteps. Pleasant. And that, my friend, is the Eastern State Penitentiary. Philadelphia. Flip, 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 Philadelphia. Flip, 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 Philadelphia. So, on a skeptic scale of paranormal, I'm going to give it a five. Yeah, me too. Honestly, I kind of feel like prisons slash penitentiaries are right there with cemeteries on reasons why they have to be haunted. Mm -hmm. So I am more inclined to believe that they're haunted. I found one article. Mind you, it was an NPR article. Yeah. That referenced, like, torture that happened here. Suicides, torture. Kayla just threw her glasses after on for her face and after smashing so, them into yeah, a microphone. That wasn't. I'm sorry. That was an accident. I was just trying to adjust so that they wouldn't squish my behind my ears. All right. Sorry. Continue. No worries. Um. Yeah. So this NPR article like mentioned all of these really terrible things. This like torture, uh, like the being dipped into really cold water, all that kind of stuff. But that's the only place I saw it. But it's also NPR, so it's got to be right. No, NPR does embellish. They will, depending on the author. Okay. Well, I usually consider them a a pretty highly regarded source. Oh, no, they're definitely highly regarded. But any source can be embellished to get views. Right. So there's that. I do think that um, religion takes things to a whole nother level. And kind of like we were talking about with the Skeptical Inquirer. Mm Mm-hmm. If the NPR author who, let's just call it like it is, NPR tends to be more uh, not religious leaning. Correct. So they might take a story that involves religious practices and make it sound specifically Christian practices and make it sound more brutal than it is. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just trying to like come up with where I'm trying to be the like opposite end of the spectrum there. 
See, and I I took it more as in um, one of my main sources was the Eastern State Penitentiary's website itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel like they probably wouldn't. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Emphasizes it as much, and Wikipedia didn't like also barely emphasized anything that was negative. It was like the most watered down factual thing. But I love a I I honestly a lot of times I love a watered down factual thing. Yeah, I know, but but I feel like I'm I not like something was missing. No, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying like I think that on both ends there's the people that are going to try to make it look better than it was. Right. And then there's the people that are going to try to make it look worse for the same reason that me and you were shit talking fucking prisons the whole time. Mm-hmm. Cuz we have our belief systems about how things go. Right. Right. So, right. right. But yeah, so yeah. I'm also going to give it a five. Yep. Um, yeah. Prisons are, I don't even know how to resolve that shit. I can't even, I can't even start, like, don't even get me started. I don't even know how to resolve that shit. I know, because I feel like even people who go into the privatized prison sphere, some of them do actually go into it with the intention of making something better. Yep. And in the end, money always rules out and everything always ends up shitty. And then I'm just stuck, like, surrounded by people that I'm like, you should have never been there. You should have never been there. You should still be there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird It's a weird balance, and I don't know how to resolve it, and I will always have this conversation, but not now because we are trying to wrap up this episode. We've already been talking for way too long, <laughs> and we've got to re- record two more episodes this week. we got to keep we our have, talking on a minimum. We so have many, so many things to say. So many say. things to say. So much <laughs> stuff to do. If... <laughs> If you have a paranormal story to share, a suggestion, anything you'd like to talk to us about, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, which is almost completely updated by now with the sources. Awesome. I've sent her a million of them <laughs> all at once. She was like, girl. It's going to take a minute. <laughs> this but is too many sources. <laughs> you can go to our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the listener stories tab at the top of the page. You can also visit the link tree in our bio. You can choose to include your name or remain anonymous, whatever you are most comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic, and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. All right, well, we love you all and appreciate you so much. We're gonna, you guys don't know it, but we're going to spend so much time with you this week. I mean, over a period, a period, over a period, over a period <laughs> of weeks, but uh, we ourselves are going to spend so much time with this you this week. week. <laughs> this week. <laughs> so thank you all. We, uh, we, we appreciate you. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay, okay bye. Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!